My guest in the reading corner today is Manon Stephan Ross, and we're going to be talking about her book, The Blue Book of Nebo. Manon, to begin, I wonder whether you could read us a little bit of the story. Yes, of course. No problem. I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, here we go. The Lun. Mam says that it's best to write like this now. Because she can't be bothered to teach me, I think. Can't be bothered or can't find the energy. I'm not sure which it is or if there's any difference. She used to sit with me for an hour each morning, the hour when Mona sleeps. We did stuff like adding and reading, not like we used to do at school. No graphs or times tables or anything like that. She got me to read books and then I had to write about them and she marked them with a red biro, telling me where I'd spelled something wrong or said something stupid. And then after doing adding up and taking away, there was no more maths. She started to worry. About the biros too, because we don't want them running out. I don't have anything else to teach you, Dylan, she said yesterday. She just read through something I'd written about a romantic novel, about a man and a woman who meet on a train, and I think something clicked in her. There's no point carrying on like this. So she said that as long as I spend an hour writing every day, she wasn't going to bother me with schoolwork anymore. She got this book from a house we broke into in Nepo. It was in one of the small drawers of a little desk in the corner of someone's living room. Usually we only steal the really important stuff, like matches or rat poison or books. But she held this notebook in her hands and turned it over a few times before putting it in her bag. You have that, she said later, when we got home, to write your story. The Blue Book of Nepo, I smiled, taking the book from her. The pages were blank and wide, like a new day. Eh? asked Mam. Like the Black Book of Carmarthen or the Red Book of Hergest. That's how they did it in the olden days. I'd read about them in a book about Welsh history. Important books that said something about our history, and now is a part of history, isn't it? The book's jacket is a lovely, rich, dark blue, almost black. Bible black, Dylan Thomas said. But you can tell when a book is a Bible without even looking at the spine for the title. You just know. My book doesn't look like an important book, but all books are just words strung together. After that... I put the book on the top shelf in case Mona got hold of it, and I went up to the lean-to to fix the corner that's leaking. You wouldn't believe how much water can get through a tiny hole like that. It only needed a tiny lump of Play-Doh and then a piece of tarpaulin on top of that, about two inches square. I could spare only one nail because there aren't many left. It'll do for now. Mona started crying. A man went to fetch her from the crib. There's a hell of a view from the lean too. Down towards Carnarvon, where you can see the castle towers jetting out like gnarled teeth, and then the sea and Anglesey beyond it. I can't ever remember going to Anglesey, but Mam says I went there loads of times when I was a little boy. 
There were nice places to go for walks, Mam says, and loads of lovely beaches all around, because Anglesey is an island. I was thinking about that yesterday when I was sitting on the roof of the lean-to looking out, seeing the sea and the island, which looks too big to be an island from here. There are trees and fields and places I don't know between here and the sea. Yesterday was a cold day, cold enough to make my mouth steam like snow in a saucepan. I sat there thinking about all those people in the olden days, poor things, going to beaches in their cars and sitting there all day with nothing to do, standing with their feet in the water, then splashing about a bit and then having a picnic. I try not to think about those people too much. Then I heard Mam coming out with Mona strapped to her chest and I climbed down the ladder. There was too much to do to waste time thinking about Anglesey and the times that had happened before now. Mm. Well, what I want to say is, could you just read the rest of the book? I didn't want it to come to an end. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. There's a lot to pick up just from that opening chapter, which is right at the beginning of the book. Uh, We know that something catastrophic has happened. We don't know Mm. what it is, but clearly life has changed. So this story is written in this book form and it's alternating between Rowena, Dylan's mum and Dylan. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you came to write it and, and how you came to write it in that particular way. Well, the truth is, and I never feel like I should admit this, but um, I never plan anything. So when I'm writing, um, I've got the characters in my head, the main characters, and I've got the location. I think those two things are key for me, but I never know what's going to happen um, in the middle, never mind the end. <laughs> and um, the Blue Book of Never kind of came out like that. I hadn't um, planned to... Uh, write it from their perspectives, but it seemed to make perfect sense, especially because it's dystopia, really. It's There's a non-specific nuclear disaster that's happened. We don't know what exactly it is, but basically everyone else in the world has gone, except for these two. And it made sense to me to have both their voices and to see how differently their truths were mm. and how different their experiences were. And so you you get that by um, using the dual uh, narration, I think. And as you say in the story, it allows you both to delve further back into the past because you've got the mother's memory to draw on, which is obviously longer than her son's. And he's very much in the present because he's younger. Yeah, I think that they're really quite different characters and... I think the character of the mother, she she has a longing for uh, the time before the end, the time that, you, you know, you and I are living in now. Although she does write that she never really fit in. Uh, I think, you know, she does come across as having been quite a lonely person. Um, but there's still that knowledge of what was before and all that has been lost. His knowledge of what's been lost is not the same because it's imagined. So he's imagining the life he might have had and the life that he wants. And I think they they flit between thinking that 
post-apocalypse is better or worse for them personally. Now, we've talked a little bit about Rowena's feeling of being different and we get a sense that there's something not entirely happy in her past. But part of this seems to be a disconnect from her Welshness. Um, And that obviously changes through the story as well. So I suppose one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading was how the whole apocalyptic aspect of the story seemed in some way to mirror the possible losing of Welshness and Welsh identity. Um, There was something that I think David Thorpe says, instinct makes you save that which you are most in danger of losing. Yeah, it's it was a really interesting process of uh, translation because this novel was originally published in Welsh and when the opportunity came to translate it, I think the easiest thing to do would have been to kind of get rid of the Welshness of it. But that didn't feel authentic to me because these characters are Welsh. But I had to explain why these Welsh characters were writing this blue book of Nepa in English and why would that be? And so in the English version, there's a kind of, there's a new thread of a theme there about Rita Welshness. And I think there are so many people that um, are Welsh and have maybe learnt a little bit of Welsh at school or have had a little bit of Welsh at home, but they don't feel confident enough to speak it or to write it. And I wanted to write about the journey of repossessing the mother tongue and to realise that you don't have to know all the rules of the grammar, you don't have to spell everything correctly. Language is a form of communication. So if you're managing to communicate what you're thinking, then you're doing it just as well as Shakespeare did in a way, because that's its job, right? We don't we don't have to be poetic and perfect. It's, so yeah, it was about that journey. And I can't imagine this book existing without that theme. So you're saying that wasn't there in the Welsh? Well, the, the, in the Welsh version, it was more about the Welsh literature because we have, again, this disconnect between people who think that Welsh books are not for them. So it was more about that side. And there's a lot about Welsh literature in here and the sort of classic Welsh literature. And there are a lot of people who just feel like uh, they feel safer reading in English. But I wanted to kind of explore this idea that literature is for everyone. It's not, you know, it's not elitist. Mm. Well, it shouldn't be. Mm. Can I just mention two minor characters uh, in the story? David and Susan, who live in the house close to uh, Rowena and Dylan. And there comes a point in the story when they decide to leave. And Susan is born in Thanet, which is in Kent. And she says goodbye and thank you in Welsh. Yeah. Which I found very moving. I thought it was really important to have those characters there because at the beginning of the book, they're kind of described as a bit of a trope, I think, of um, English people who move to Wales and make no efforts to learn any Welsh words or to sort of 
be part of Welsh culture. Um, but actually to reverse that and to sort of actually shine a light differently on, on those people. And in my opinion, sort of David thought particularly he he's the he's the hero of this piece, you know. They wouldn't have survived without him. Just wanted to take that uh cliche and stamp on it a little bit. Really interesting. Um I was really struck by uh, the character of the mother, Rowena, and how she puts herself down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't do this. I've got nothing more to teach you. I don't read much. And when this disaster is about to take place, she is so in tune with what's going to happen. And she's incredibly resourceful. And without that resourcefulness, then they wouldn't probably have survived either. Mm-hmm. I love her. She's so imperfect and is held back by all these insecurities and um, just that feeling of, I can't, I can't do that. And I think the truth is that if the disaster wouldn't have happened, then Rowena would have led quite an unfulfilled life. But this kind of forced her to be resourceful and 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 to just survive just that survival instinct in someone that didn't believe she would or could talk a little bit about welsh literature because i think great welsh literature has seeped into children's literature over the years you know so much children's fantasy draws on welsh literature Mm. so a lot of us don't even realize that that's where those influences are coming from tell us a little bit about how it seeped into this book and your thoughts about that uh this is one of the joys of translation because this book has been translated into quite a few languages now and when i get the copies the first thing i do is i turn to the back pages and there's a quote i put in from a welsh poet and writer called th barry williams and whichever language it is i can see the quote i can't understand it because i don't speak the language but i can see his name and i'm like yes people know about him yay um so welsh literature and culture it's really as you say people don't really know about it and yeah, historically, you know, you've got the Mapinaki, you've got these wonderful um, folk tales and legends, but actually it's a live thing. It's just joyful. It's just joyful to have two languages. I'm lucky, you know, it's a real privilege. It's a real privilege to have been born and raised in this culture and, and through the medium of Welsh. And it is Welsh literature in its sense of high literature, but also there's a lot about music, of course, and song and hymns. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing, and I hadn't considered it before translating it. Um, but after translation, lots of people have picked up on, you know, there's a fair amount about religion in it. The Welsh language is kind of tied to the chapel culture, and it's not necessarily religious. I think the key part is that the, the Bible was translated um, into Welsh so beautifully. So when you read the Bible in Welsh, it 
it's just sounds right you know and you don't have to really have any faith to appreciate it it's really beautiful and that's fed into our language so I think Nebo explores this idea of the Bible and um, all the rituals of religion what happens when you have those things and that those things are sacred to you but you don't necessarily have the faith to go with it mm. Tell me a little bit about um, the place that this is set where you can see Carnarvon and you can see Anglesey. It must be a place that you've been to. Yes, but oddly, I don't really have much of a connection with the place. The one thing local people all know about Nebo is there's a massive big TV mast there. And if you go up there, there's uh, there's not it's not a big village at all, but you have the most spectacular views of Anglesey, and then you've got the mountains behind you. It's a place that people pass on the road, and I'm always quite interested in those places places that don't tend to be destinations. It's a really lovely, lovely place, and I I still have absolutely no idea why I chose this place. It just felt right. And I could see the house. Um, as I was saying, the location, setting books, really important to me. And I think I've taken lots of bits of places that I love and, and sort of placed them in Nepal. The other thing that I wanted to, or, or strand that I wanted to explore, was this idea of dystopia and the sort of catastrophe and, and the nuclear uh, side of things and whether that was a big driver uh, for you in writing this story and was there a sort of anxiety around that um, that made you write this book really? Oh, definitely I think well my, my parents were activists and we used to go to protests almost every weekend when I was a little girl. Usually there were protests with the Welsh language society, um, but we also used to do, go to CND um, matches and so on. And I just developed this huge fear of nuclear disaster. I think there was a specific march or a specific rally where someone explained to me the extent of kind of a nuclear bomb and I had recurring nightmares for years and years and years. And then gradually, you know, I became a teenager and I was, you know, turning my mind to other things. But then when I had children, it kind of reawakened the fear in these things. And so I think the Blue Book of Nepo is really me writing the things that I'm most scared of. So there's that theme of nuclear disaster but there's also the theme of being a mother and the fact that it's our job to love them unconditionally fiercely but it's also our job to make them independent of us and that that's really quite sad and necessary Basically, I've used this book as therapy for myself. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you wrote it in 2018, obviously with the war and conflict that's going on in Ukraine and a nuclear power station being overrun. 
and you realize that things mm-hmm. can happen accidentally. It's not just a big war. <laughs> no, that definitely made me sort of aware again, awakened me again to the awareness as well. Yeah, things can happen accidentally, but also that we're kind of living on the whims of powerful, sometimes mad men. And that's that's terrifying. And you can't allow yourself to think too much about that because you would just be constantly frightened. Mm. But yeah, it's it's still a massive fear. And I think increasingly as the years go by, I think that this could be something else as well. It, you know, I, I could have written it about a climate crisis. That's become a far bigger fear in the years since I wrote this book. Just picking up what you said about the other thing, letting your children go, when there is no world for them to go out into, Mm. that's difficult, isn't it? Because you are the only, as far as you know, you are the only two people. So how do you let your children go when there's nowhere to go? Well, that's what happens here. And of course, she can't let him go. And I think she becomes more dependent on him. And I think that I wrote that because I wanted to explore um, the fact that it does actually need to happen. It's not it's not a happy place if you cling to your children when they're older. You know, you it's 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 really part of the journey, and it's a really important part. It's one of the it's one of the great moments I suppose I'm ter- I'm still terrified of it I am because you just give all your energy and all your efforts and all your love to the kids and and of course they will go and it's like giving birth to your heart and seeing your heart walking around and getting themselves into dangerous situations and so on but yeah that's that's the way that's the way mm, it, is, it, it is indeed the way um I I don't think I'm giving away too much uh, of the ending to say there is a moment, though, when they realise they're not alone any longer and they hear a helicopter flying overhead. And I sort of had a Lord of the Flies moment there. (laughs) You know, the ship comes back and you you, this idea of rescue and whether rescue is going to be a good thing or not in your view do you think these characters would be better off being found and rescued or do you think they've just learned so much and discovered a new way of being that actually it's better for them to just carry on ah that's a really really hard question to answer because I flit I flit between thinking that it's a happy ending or a sad ending I don't know and it's really split the readership as well and I can't decide, and maybe it's a split between the two as well. I think maybe Rowena would find it hard to go back mm-hmm. and that Dylan would be quite excited by just because of his need for others. Well, I do want to end on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to say that we do have literature and we have books like yours which hopefully will keep us thinking. Do you know, I when I talk to young people, it just fills me with hope. I think that this generation, they're just wonderful 
human beings, I think they're far more loving. They're far more responsible than the generations that have come before. So, yeah, I think think we're going to be okay with this lot, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me in the Reading Corner today. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.